Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Outcomes Rocket listeners, welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket, where we chat with today's most inspiring and successful healthcare leaders. If you like what you listen to on the show, please make sure that you go to outcomesrocket.com slash review to let us know and give us ratings and reviews on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, because that's what truly informs me of what's going on with the show and how it's resonating with you. So without further ado, I want to introduce our outstanding guest. His name is Dr. Rob Lamberts, also known as Dr. Rob. And so Dr. Rob's been in the field for quite some time now, owns Dr. Rob Lambert's practice, and is also the author and writer at more-distractable.org. He is super funny, but also touches on all of the things that are important in medicine. And I want to welcome you to the show, Dr. Rob. Nice to be here. I appreciate you inviting me to talk and putting all that pressure on me to be funny. I don't know about <laughs> Well, don't worry about it. I think you just got to be yourself and it just naturally comes out. So no pressure. But what I wanted to do, Dr. Rob, is ask you, why did you decide to get into medicine to begin with? Oh, I actually, when I started college, I actually started as a voice major, a vocal performance major way back when. And it was, the main reason I chose that is because my dad wanted me to go into science. And I just was like, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. He's a physicist. And so, but then I realized that I kind of had this vision of becoming this middle school music teacher. And, you know, if there's a a punishment from an afterlife, you either become a slug or you become a middle school music teacher. Uh, At least I I shouldn't say that because (laughs) there may be some of those among your listeners and they are wonderful people. But to me that I was not very nice to my middle school (laughs) music teachers. So anyway, yeah, it's a pretty rough time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I ended up switching to science, chemistry, and honestly didn't even think about medicine for a while because I hated the pre-meds that I had to deal with in my college. They were all just kind of jerky and grade hungry and whatever, and they just didn't seem like my kind of people. And so I did chemistry and I did some philosophy stuff and I did a lot of this and that, but kind of ended up coming to the point where I thought, you know, I like to be around people. I like science. What combines those things? And medicine became that thing that just kind of stuck in my brain as being, okay, well, let's take the MCAT. Let's see how I do. Uh, and I did well. And it was just like, okay, well, but even even in medical school, when I was going from my second to third year, the first two years, you're just doing academics. And the, the third year is all going on the, the clinical stuff. And I just remember being terrified that I would either hate it or I would kill a bunch of people or, you know, whatever. And, you know, much to my relief, it's kind of exactly what I want to be doing with my life. That's really awesome. And congratulations on sort of following that path based off of the things that you were looking for, what you were passionate about. And the one thing that I find particularly interesting about your story, Dr. Rob, is what led you to what you're doing today. It's a non-traditional approach. And for the listeners that don't know about Dr. Rob, he is solo practice, but there's a story behind that. And so I was hoping that you could share that with the listeners. Got it. Well, about five years ago, 
I like to say that the, my, my sobriety date was September, uh, my five-year sobriety t- date was September 28th of this year, and it was the last time I took money from an insurance company, or at least billed it to the insurance company. And in that time, I had been in a practice, I was a senior partner actually in a practice for 18 years. I do, uh, I'm board certified internal medicine and pediatrics. So I just do primary care medicine. And I, I loved primary care medicine, but I felt like I was drowning. I felt like every day I was leaving a, a little less of myself in the whole equation. And I was leaving a bunch of care on the table and that that I didn't feel like I was giving good care to anybody. And that kind of drove me to really rethink what I was doing or try to push to allow my practice to still give high quality care despite a system that was doing the opposite, that was wanting me to see as many people as I possibly could, that was wanting me to focus a lot more on documentation than on actual care. That's stuff that any primary care doctor and any doctor pretty much knows what it's like. It's this hamster wheel that keeps going faster and it's exhausting. I was with a couple of other docs and they had a whole different way they wanted to move. It seemed to me that they wanted to move more in the business side and run that business more efficiently. And I just like taking care of people. And I don't want to make it sound like that I was the crusader and the good person and they're the the sinister evil folks who I was fighting against. I was an idiot in my own ways, but ended up basically getting a divorce with my partners in that circumstance, which is, it's very much like that. And then I had to kind of say, okay, what am I going to do? I I don't want to go into insurance-based practice again. It's going to be even worse if I do it solo. And I'm, I'm too much of a headstrong alpha, I guess, to work for another practice and be a junior person. I had been senior for a long time. And working at the VA, working at for a hospital, again, seemed like I was going to the dark side. So I ended up talking to Dave Chase. Dave had read some of the stuff I wrote, and Dave is just a great guy. Yeah, I call him. Had him on the show recently, actually. Yeah, I call Dave my Yoda, because (laughs) he doesn't talk that way. He doesn't Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't care you will do. Uh, but he, He's uh, wise, though. He is very, very wise. And he actually, we were talking, I forget exactly what started us talking. I think some of my stuff had gone on the healthcare blog. Some of his stuff had gone on the healthcare blog. He just wanted to connect up because he resonated with some of the stuff that I was writing. And we talked and he told me about direct primary care, which is kind of a different take on the whole concierge type of an idea. It's a, still a monthly membership fee, but the concierge practices, I didn't like the idea because it was so high priced that it would basically price all my patients out. And so what could I do? And this was a much lower priced model that focused on efficiency that focused on using communication tools. And once he started talking about it, it just clicked with me. It was like, this is what I need to be doing. And you know, there weren't many practices out there that were doing it. There were very few, actually. I think it was under 100 when I first started five years ago. Now there's almost 1,000. And the term direct primary care, yeah, term direct primary care is what you use. And the big features of this type of practice are that first off that you you don't accept any money from insurance at all. You just dump insurance. In fact, most of the docs have opted out of Medicare as well, which was scary as I'll get out because there's a two-year opt-out period that you can't go back. And so if I had wanted to do something, I couldn't. What about just uh, out of curiosity, these more consumer plans, like you got Bright Health now and Oscar, 
Is it still the same philosophy, not taking money from them either? One of the keys for me is that I work for my customer. My patient is my customer and whoever pays you is the one you work for. One of my favorite ways of looking at this is if you look at the business of normal healthcare is the normal business of healthcare is who do I work for as a doctor? Who is the customer and who is the consumer? Well, the reality is in that circumstance, who's paying the doctors? Well, it's insurance companies. Okay. What are they paying them for? Healthcare? No, actually you get paid entirely based on your coding. So it's really the ICD, CPT codes. You submit those, E&M codes. Right, right, right. And, and now there's some data you could throw into that. And okay, so the product are codes. The customer is the insurance company. And so the good customer service is to treat the insurance companies well, get them their data exactly like they want to. Documentation simply supports the billing, makes it so you don't get in trouble. And so what are patients? And the answer is, well, patients are kind of raw material for codes. And so they're like cows that you can milk the codes out of. You know, they come in and you milk some, you know, and then another cow comes and you milk some more codes and can I get it? And it's a crass idea, but it resonates so well because that's what patients feel like when they go to a doctor's office. They feel like cattle. Yeah, for sure. Rushing stuff and you're doing stuff. So this idea of taking money from a third-party payer, the minute you get money from even some of these more quote-unquote moral third-party payers, to me, the minute I do that, that I let them into the exam room with me. I let them into the exam room to say, oh, so let me look at your chart to make sure you're doing everything that you should be doing. You know, I just want to give them, flip them the bird and say, get away from me and my patients. <laughs> I love this it. This is my relationship with them. <laughs> and the other thing is that it makes it so I'm unequivocally on their side. I am unequivocally that they don't question that I'm somehow, their notes are going to go to the insurance company, which they can't because uh, there isn't an insurance company involved that, you know, all of that stuff. They know that I am working for them and I'm going to do the right thing for them. So, No, that's really great. And I uh, appreciate you sharing that because I know that there's, uh, you know, listeners there, you're out there and you're feeling what you're feeling today. If you're a physician and, and the pressure and the charting and everything that you have to do. And Dr. Lambert's here was going through what you went through and has decided on an alternative method. And he feels obviously that this is benefiting his patients. And so it's a way of doing things that is more personal and detached from being a puppet of the system. I think it's really cool and uh, very admirable. You're weaning yourself or, or I forget what you said, but uh, you're, you stop uh, sobriety. your sobriety. Yeah, yeah, your sobriety. So congrats on five years of sobriety from the yeah. system. So what, what do you think a, a hot topic that should be on every medical leader's agenda today? And uh, how are you and your organization dealing with it? Okay, for me, one of the problems that we've got, any healthcare reform stuff that's out there, totally misses the point. At least if you look at the Affordable Care Act or if you look at stuff before that, the High Tech Act or some of the recent stuff that the Congress is trying to get through, all of this stuff is not addressing the main problem, which is the cost of care. How do we decrease the cost of care? Because if you're not, I mean, the reason that healthcare became inaccessible is because we kept spending money and the insurance companies keep jacking up costs, jacking up costs. And that, geez, if you read Dave Chase's book, it just makes you want to take a shower after, you know, reading <laughs> chapters about 
how insurance companies bend, you know, they'll let fraud go through so that they can chase it down and earn money for getting fraud. It's just eliminating fraud. It's just so, ugh, it's just so horrible. And, and you see all of these ways in which nobody is incentivized to actually save money. And I really believe that the only way you can do that is to flip the equation and have somebody who benefits from actually having people who are well, people who are not utilizing the system, and people who were avoiding doing extra procedures on. And you know, the problem is that in the typical practice, doctors are paid most by having sick people, sicker the better, doing lots of procedures on and spending as little time with them as we possibly can. That's how I earn the best money. And that's one of the core conflicts in my, the reason I broke up with my partners is because they ended up saying, kind of gave up and wanted to embrace it. And I said, hell no, I don't, I don't want to embrace that because it goes against the care <laughs> side of what I'm doing. And so I think that this idea of saying, okay, so how are we going to have somebody who's playing defense, whether it is a universal healthcare plan for everybody? Okay, so how do you control cost aside from passive aggressively saying, okay, let's look you up. And if you're spending too much, we're going to make you not get as much money or whatever. That's part of a big problem right now. All of the MIPS and MACRA stuff. And I mean, it's all basically doctors all feel like that is big brother looking over your shoulder, looking for a way to take more money away from you when it's not our fault. When the system is taking all the money, it's the healthcare administrators, it's the health, it's the plans, it's all, it's the drug companies, it's the pharmacies. All of these people are stealing money, and yet we're the one who are responsible for controlling costs. Are you kidding me? And yet I can control costs when I'm working for my patients in a very different way because if I keep my patients well and out of the office, then I can grow my panel. I'm up to about 700 patients now and continuing to grow at a reasonable pace, as much as I really as I want to. I can dial it up if I want to. And, and lets me pay attention to them. And if, if I take good care of them and keep them happy, they keep paying monthly payments and I get more patients. That's really great. And you bring up a phenomenal point that oftentimes gets ignored. And with the reform that happened at the ACA and even when Romney launched it over in Massachusetts, right? Mm -hmm. This whole thing about runaway costs still is not being addressed. And you're calling it robbery on behalf of all these other people, uh, the system administrators and, and plans. And, and ultimately, how do we incentivize, right? Because ultimately, things get followed when there's incentives in place. And how do we incentivize making people healthy? Well, I mean, the answer is put the patient at the center. Because as a patient, I mean, we're all patient. Everybody here is a patient. And the, answer, the question is, what do you want? Do you want to spend more on your health care or less? I want to spend less. Do you want to be more sick or less sick? I want to be less sick. Do you want to go to the hospital and get unnecessary procedures? I mean, all of the things, do you want to pay more for your drugs or less for your drugs? I mean, all, the one person in the whole equation who has the most incentive for saving money, for running the system efficiently, is the person who the whole system is created for in the first place. And yet it's the person who's become that cow that you milk, you know, milk codes out of in the regular system the one that feels the most disempowered. You know, it's this whole idea of patient-centered healthcare. It's almost like, are you kidding? Patient-centered healthcare? That's like saying number-centered mathematics. It's redundant. Almost, it should be redundant, but it isn't. It's become, it's entirely 
the way that medical records, are they patient-centered? No, they're billing records. They're pure and simple billing records that have medical stuff in there, but there's so much what I call computer vomit of all this junk that's put in the notes to justify your billing. Everything about healthcare has gone away from patient-centeredness. And I think somehow, and that's, that's why I see the success of what I do as being, I am very much outcomes-based because the person who cares the most about the outcome is the patient. They don't want the outcome to be bad and they want me to know that I'm on their side, that I'm willing to educate them that I'm willing to do the right thing, that I'm willing to answer their questions without forcing them to come to the office to do things in a way that makes sense. No, that's really interesting, Dr. Rob. And and can you give the listeners an example of what you're doing with your practice has improved outcomes? Do I have statistics? The answer is no, I don't have statistics, but boy, do I have a ton of vignettes. I have a ton of situations where a person, I had a guy in my practice, my regular practice for years, and then he switched over, and this is fairly early on, and I had seen somebody else recently with a head and neck cancer, just had a kind of a hard lymph node, and we ended up sending him in, and he got treated for a head and neck cancer. And this other guy comes in and says, you know, I got this lump on my neck, and, you know, that rang the little bells in my head, and I said, just come on in, and, you know, I could do that right away. He came straight in. And I looked at him and first it was like, yeah, it's a little early, but let's do this. But my, you know, I was in that paranoid mode after yeah, you sure. know somebody in that circumstance. And so you're paying a little bit more attention to it. Well, it turns out that he did have a head and neck cancer as well. And he came to me later and, and then he, he sends me a text message, which they're allowed to do in my practice. And he sends me a text message and says, yeah, my wife is thinking I should do alternative medicine stuff for this. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. That's why Steve Jobs is dead. He had a curable cancer that he chose to use alternative medicine on in this circumstance. And for this type of a problem, I'm not, I'm not totally closed-minded to alternative medicine, but you know, when it comes to head and neck cancer, which are bad enough in traditional medicine, to wait six months, a year before you start treating it is, is asking for huge trouble. And so we talked about that and he ended up getting it taken care of and he's doing fine. But he came back to me afterwards and said, I wouldn't have come in if it was your old practice. I would have waited a lot longer, but you're available. And I've had tons of people- So would trust be the word? Additional trust is created? Additional trust, but the truth is, what do, you know, I was thinking about what is my minimum viable product? Because I talked, I read the whole lean startup stuff and this idea of, because I'm basically a startup. I was a startup at that point in time. And there really wasn't a model in which I was modeling myself after. I was really trying to build it from scratch and figure it out. I talked to a few folks, but I kind of made it up. And the big product that I am selling, the thing that people would pay, were really willing to pay for is access. They want access to me. They want access to my nurses. They want access. And that doesn't mean I have to answer my pages immediately or whatever. That just means that they don't feel like when people come to the office, to the regular doctor's office, they don't feel like they have the doctor's attention. When they call the office, they go through this tree of people who are trying to play defense to keep patients, the doctor away from these patients that are hungrily trying to get free care out of the doctor. That's the attitude of the office staff at most doctor's offices, Uh, not, well, gosh, sure, here's the text message thing that you can get a hold of them right away. I had another guy who sent me a text message on a Sunday night and saying, I have a bright lower quadrant pain. 
And it's like, oh, okay, appendicitis, there you go. And that's what he was thinking. I said, okay, so a couple of questions. First is, are you eating? Yeah, I'm eating fine. I'm, I'm doing no problem. Are you having bowel movements? I, yeah, I am having bowel movements, actually doing fine. I said, okay, it's really unlikely to be appendicitis if you're eating well, if you're having bowel movements. So, you know, you, people have an ileus in that circumstance, and it's much worse. It's still possible. But that meant on a Sunday night, a guy, this guy who died, had no insurance could, I felt comfortable holding him off because I knew him too. I mean, that's the other thing is right. not only do they have access to me, but they know that I know them and I'm willing to ask questions. He came in, he didn't have appendicitis. He had some other stuff going on, whatever. But I prevented ER visit and I, I do that all the time, where, whether it's even just doing a text message within the ER and say, show the doctor this. <laughs> and yeah. I give them, you know, whether it's their labs or whether it's their just saying, this is what I did on you before. And it just gives that extra level of communication and continuity. And my patients feel like I can cut the cost of care, improve the quality of care. I can do all of those types of things. And yeah, the improved outcome is the fact that people walk out of my office feeling like they're getting care. They don't feel like they're getting the runaround, which most people feel like. Obviously, uh, you're passionate about it. And for me, you know, I'm just thinking of myself as a patient too. I, I definitely would like that access and being able to feel that additional trust. So I think it's really great that you're doing this. And what would you share with other physicians out there that are maybe on the fence and maybe fearful of leaving the system? What would you share with them as far as advice and, and encouragement? Well, first off, my story, I start, when I started, I didn't have a lot of help. In fact, there weren't, I didn't even have a good medical record system. You know, the medical record systems out there are totally garbage. They're based on billing and they've gotten farther and farther away from good patient care. Question is, okay, so what would a medical record system look like if the only reason for it was to give patient care? Which is, again, it's just like saying patient-centered medicine. It's like, patient-centered medical record. It almost seems like it should be obvious, but it is completely the opposite. And I couldn't find anything. I ended up building my own for a while on a database. I am kind of a geek in that regard and ended up finally finding one. But it took several years of, while I was practicing before those products started catching up with the fact that direct primary care was becoming a thing. And there was a, a company doing billing software that I hooked up with that I kind of helped them get started actually. And there's a bunch of things that have now come along, communication software, other tools that make it much easier. So first off, I would say my story, it was a lot harder for me because I was just kind of trekking across. You're you know, pioneering it, right? Yeah, there was a hundred and, and now there's yeah. a thousand. Now there's a thousand of folks and everybody loves what they do and wants to help out. So there's a lot of resources out there. A lot of, you know, whether it's, there's a Facebook group on it, there's a company called Hint that has a community board. Or the family practice group has a community message board where people communicate and just give ideas. I had a, you know, just last night got a message from somebody from Chattanooga said, while we're in town, do you think we could stop by and just see what your practice is like? I said, sure, come on in. You know, seeing it in real life is the best thing. But that's the thing. It's not smoke and mirrors. I mean, I've really done it. I, five years, and despite being a doctor, I haven't driven it into the ground. Uh, I like to say this is so easy, even a doctor can do it. Because we're not, actually, it was the fact that I admitted that I suck at business, that I'm not, I, I'm allergic to decimal points, that all of that little accounting stuff just, you know, makes me have, have high. And I made it as so, I dumbed it down as simple as I possibly can. 
I don't want co-pays because that's stupid. Because that's just one more thing I have to collect on. I don't want other things to complicate. I don't want people paying six months at a time or a year at a time. Because what happens if they leave or if I get in a car accident? Then I've got to figure all that out. Look, just do monthly payments. That's as simple as I possibly can. And the cool thing is, getting back to the whole copay thing, the cool thing is that if my business model is simply there's one thing that I want, and that is more patients paying on a monthly basis then all of my motivation is turned to making sure people have such value that they can't afford to leave. So I just started dispensing medications where I'm able to give, yeah, your blood pressure pill costs a dollar for six months or whatever. You know, you can give medicine really cheap because the wholesale prices are real cheap or labs are real cheap. And I've had people say, well, why don't you, you know, if you up the cost of those, you could earn a little extra. And it's like, I could earn an extra... a month by increasing my fees or $100 a month or maybe even $200 a month. But that is, you know, because I charge between like, you know, on average $40 to $50 a month for my, my monthly fee. That's like four extra patients. That's it. And if I can keep people from leave, four extra people from leaving because I have such freaking low prices for medicine because I'm so available because I do things that are patient-centered, then they can't afford to leave. And, and people are constantly saying, boy, you've spoiled me. Boy, you've spoiled me. I said, yeah, that's <laughs> my business model. That's so spoiled. great. I was wondering too, Dr. Rob, like what is the cost per month and between 50, 60 bucks? Yeah, I actually... Or it depends on... It depends on age. And one of the things that I've kind of been an evangelist for within the community, because I think there's a lot of folks who do... You know, 50 as your baseline and 75, maybe if you're older or, you know, even a little higher, but it's under 100 in general for that. The problem is that if you're dealing with the population who's 50 and up, yeah, they see the value in it in general. I say that as a 50 and up person myself that, you know, we think about our health a little bit more and we're willing to invest a little bit more in it. But if somebody's in their 20s, I mean, 50 bucks a month that's a lot. And they're not going to utilize you. And so if you charge those folks 50 bucks a month, the only folks in their 20s who are going to pay it are going to be exactly the wrong patients, exactly the wrong customers, the ones who want to utilize you as much as possible to quote unquote, get their money's worth. And I have kept that price down to $30 in the $30 a month range, which seems to be palatable in that range. And I've even, you know, I was having trouble attracting pediatrics because uh, there's a whole immunization fiasco with when you don't have insurance you're dealing with. But I've decided that I'm probably going to lower that cost to $10 a month and maybe 20 for the other, just so that I can get more kids. And honestly, kids' visits are so easy and they don't have these long, big chronic problems that you have to deal with. And again, part of it's just I I'd like to mess around with little kids. And that's I have about 10% pediatrics. My old practice, I had about you know, 50-50. Yeah, and that's one of your strengths, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. So, And so you're you're lowering the cost because you you feel like the higher cost gets you the quote-unquote wrong patient, right? Yeah, the difficult folks. Yeah. You don't want the folks who are going to call you all the time and, and need all this help all the time. What you want are the folks who are willing to, you know, if you have 100 people who are writing you checks every month and don't really care, they don't really think of it because the cost yeah. is low enough, 
you got to be careful not to select out the very patients that you want. That's cool. And we're getting close to the end here. I wish we had extra time, but what we'll do, because this is so interesting, and I think the audience will find it interesting too, Dr. Lambert. I think we definitely need to do a part two on direct primary care, maybe within the next couple months, if you're up for it. Absolutely. But I was curious, you know, so you're doing all these things that are, you know, more modernized and and I heard you say check. Like, so the people still pay you in checks or, or do you take PayPal and credit cards? Like, how does that part of your practice work? Yeah, that's an anachronism. Well, people do, some people do pay in checks. Some people pay in cash. I have done some bartering. I haven't gotten, I have had people bring me eggs and other you know, <laughs> fresh produce, but that's not been a payment thing. But in general, I'll do any way that is easy for people. I, I prefer doing the monthly draft and I prefer it from the bank account because I get charged less. Uh, but, you know, if people want to do it on their, their credit card, if people want to write a check, that's fine. I don't really care. As long I was, as I was just it. curious, you know, I was, I was wondering what your, what your thought process was. Yeah, that just means I'm 55 years old. And when I say write a check, it's just <laughs> uh, an anachronism from the days of old get paid, right? Um, Okay. No, very cool. Very cool. So let's pretend you and I, and this is a little lightning round, Dr. Rob, we're building a course on what it takes to be successful in medicine today. And it's the ABCs of Dr. Rob. And so we're going to write out a syllabus, four questions, lightning round style, and then we'll finish the syllabus with a book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready for it? Okay. All right. So what's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? Make patients the center because they're the ones who it matters to the most and incentivize doctors to care about what the patients care about. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? Making yourself the center of the universe as a doctor, and that sounds redundant, but we're, it's healthcare. It's about the patient, damn it. It's about them. And the more we start listening to people, I have so many people who say, you're the first doctor who's ever listened to me. And it's like, that just makes me angry to hear that people go through healthcare and don't get listened to. So the biggest mistake is not to listen to the people and to see the patient as an adversary rather than the people who we're here for. How do you stay relevant as a physician despite constant change? Embrace technology for one. I think text messaging is fine. The other is to also be flexible because some people can't do it. But for me is embracing technology, keeping up with you know, whether it's making sure I'm reading enough stuff to keep up with the business side of things, what's going on there with the medical side of things, but also presently looking stuff with some artificial intelligence to augment my practice using AI machine learning type of tools to make it so that, that I'm more efficient, so that I'm running better. And that allows me, it's not that the technology is the center, it's that that technology makes stuff so much more efficient that it allows me to sit and chat with people about their kids or sit and do house calls or whatever. And that's the cool thing. So I think embracing technology for what it's good for, and that is making things more efficient. Excellent. And finally, what's one area of focus that should drive all else in your practice? (laughs) That is a good question. I'm going to flip it because I'm going to take it from my perspective as a clinician. And rather than say say patient-centeredness, because that sounds like I'm just being gratuitously nice guy-ish, I want to have a good life. I want to have a good life as a doctor. To me, that doesn't mean I'm going to get a yacht. I'm not a yacht person. I'm not even a, a new car person. I'm a used car person. I'm just as happy in a used car. 
But for me, being happy is that when I leave my office, I spend most of my days liking what I'm doing. I spend most of my days, I feel like I've hit the perfect thing where I have a job that I like, that pays me well, that I'm good at. And that does good for people. And I walk away every day feeling like I am a lucky, I am just really lucky for what I'm doing. And the minute I stop feeling that way, and that's what happened in my old practice, I think my guiding star is that feeling of contentment with what I'm doing. Again, it's not having a huge 401k that's full, which it isn't because I went through several years of not making any money early on. But for me, my guiding star is if I'm doing the right thing, if I'm happy because my patients are happy, yes, but also because I'm happy. That's really cool. Yeah, I think that's great. And just keeping it simple and keeping your guiding star. I love that. And what would what book would you say uh, you recommend to the listeners here on the syllabus? Oh, well, undoubtedly, Dave Chase's book, uh, the CEO, what, what is it called? called. Just look up Dave Chase's new book. That is so educational as to the pernicious nature of a lot of the healthcare system. The other thing I would recommend to anybody who is starting out in a practice like this would be The Lean Startup. I actually benefited greatly from reading that book because it got me, I felt like I needed to build the perfect practice. Actually, Dave Chase also told me to read that book, but it's this idea that I wanted the perfect practice and it now all I have to do is do what's good enough and build it from there. And it let me know, because I still think that doctors doing this type of practice are startups. And the more you understand that mindset, the better. No, that's a really great message. So uh, go ahead and check that resource out, Outcomes Rocket listeners, and just go to outcomesrocket.com slash Dr. Rob, that's D-O-C-T-O-R-R-O-B. And you're going to find all of the notes from this episode, along with all the links to Dr. Rob's blog, as well as his uh, practice. So you could check it out if you're curious. So Dr. Rob, I really appreciate you spending the time today. And before we conclude, just want to open up the mic to you one more time so you could share a closing thought and then the best place that the listeners could get a hold of you. Well, the latter is just, you can follow me on Twitter, under doc underscore Rob, or on my, on my blog. I mean, there are ways to contact me on all those places if you need to. Uh, my practice Facebook page is another place people like to follow. What my final words of wisdom, you know, the healthcare system is this monolith and how could little practices like mine change things really? The answer is in my book, I grew up in Rochester, New York. My dad worked at Eastman Kodak. Eastman Kodak used to be this monolith, this humongous business that, I mean, you couldn't imagine the world without Kodak because everything was Kodak. But in a very short time, using the right technology and the right tools, combination of digital photography and social media, Kodak has become an afterthought. And it was done so by small companies, by, by better technology, better ways of doing things. And it seems like, how are we going to change things in the healthcare system? The answer is by building an Instagram, uh, by building those types of things that can totally revolutionize the system and make it so that these seemingly impossible tasks are now simple because we're utilizing a system that's better designed and a system that utilizes the technology to make it work well. So my hope is that when I look at it and say, how could we defeat this monster? The answer is we can. 
it's been done lots of times before. Now, very encouraging words, Dr. Rob. And what's the best place that the listeners could get in touch with you? On my blog, and you can either do it there. I mean, you could send me a direct message on Twitter if you want to as well. That's about it. Excellent. So listeners, we'll go ahead and post those things on the website. So you could definitely tune in with uh, what Dr. Rob is doing. Some pretty cool stuff and all aimed at improving outcomes. So Dr. Rob, thank you so much again for being on the show. My pleasure, Saul. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.